Good afternoon and welcome to the It's Law podcast presented by FR Law Group. I'm your host today, Richie Edwards, and I'm joined by Rita Guerra and Troy Froderman. Today in episode six, we're going to be talking about your day in court. Uh, Troy and Rita have significant, extensive experience actually trying cases, being in a courtroom, and they're going to teach us today what, what that really entails, how it's different from you know suits and TV shows that we see on Netflix and other places, um, how it goes day to day and how it'll impact your case and, and ultimately the results that you achieve. So uh, I think you've both appeared on podcasts before. So, you know, I guess we'll dispel a little bit with the introductions, but ask how we're doing today and then we'll get started. Good. Very good. Happy to be here. Troy. Yes, same. Good. So the way I want to start it is I want to go with, you know, Rita, what does it mean to be in court? You know, what, what does that really entail for somebody? I think it's actually it sounds simple, but a really good question because most people think of the end game, I think, which is the trial, uh, the dramatic scenes that you see on TV that might not always be so realistic, but there are actually um, a lot of other reasons why you may be called into court. And in fact, as most of us, I think, generally understand a large percentage, I don't have an exact number, but a large number of cases never actually go to trial. They get settled much earlier. So you may never see the inside of a courtroom. And certainly since COVID, um, when was the last time you were actually in a courtroom? Uh, I guess it was probably three months ago. But... Yeah, it's it's changed a lot since COVID and um, the popularity and ease of use now with Zoom. But um, to get back to kind of why you might find yourself in court short of a trial, um, there are a lot of preliminary um, types of proceedings that will go on that will help determine the direction of your case. And so, or the nature of your case, we'll start with kind of that one's the easiest one. Uh, most people think in terms of being in court as like a typical lawsuit, you know, party A versus party B. Uh, one of the things, that, a tool that we see used in court, which to some people may not be as familiar as the injunction. So the injunction, you might have heard of it as like a temporary restraining order. It's a tool that uh, you can use when you uh, most commonly use to stop somebody or frame somebody from you're asking for a judicial order telling somebody to stop doing something. Okay. Um, think of it. I think an easy example would be um, you're a business owner and you uh, somebody is using your logo. So it might take you two years to resolve this lawsuit, but in the meantime, it has a potential to hurt your business. Yeah. So you're going to go into court and ask a judge to order that person to stop using your logo pending the outcome of a case. Right. So why might you be in court for that? Um, Troy, I think you can speak to this as well. A lot of civil proceedings, um, as compared to criminal, I think, a lot of civil proceedings um, are done at your, or a lot of the work of the civil proceeding is done at your desk. <laughs> you are <laughs> writing, 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 emailing. Um, but for injunction, it is sort of a, um, a, a rare kind of a big ask for a judge because you're basically saying, I want you to infringe on the rights of somebody sure. else without actually without going yeah, through a trial, right? Nothing right. the merits of the case. Here's a a common example, and and all we're talking about for this podcast are civil trials. Right. Um, criminal is a different beast. Yeah. We're not going to talk about family law uh, or tax Rick or probate. <laughs> yes, this is just a ordinary civil court. Yeah. Uh, one of the most common uh, issues 
that is the subject of a preliminary injunction hearing yeah. is a non-compete. So company A employs somebody to be their sales representative and they give them a district or a market. That employee gets recruited to a competitor. Okay. The competitor wants to use that sales rep's knowledge okay. of the customer base of company A. So company A says no. And they, or if they have, most companies of any sophistication have already a written non-compete clause right. or a non-solicitation clause. Mm -hmm. uh, the non-solicitation is you're not going to go to company B and try to recruit company A's employees. But on the non-compete, which is fairly common, mm -hmm. uh, those are almost always subject to a preliminary injunction. And one of the things that they look for in that is, among other things, uh, is the non-compete clause itself enforceable? Uh, is it sufficiently narrow in scope and duration, et cetera? Mm -hmm. So that, that's where you often find yourself in court and a client finds itself in court. Uh, and that, that happens quickly because normally to get from the filing of a complaint all the way to a trial right. could be years right um, but on a injunction request that's usually a matter of less than 30 days oftentimes sooner than that right and i think you know as we see so in civil we use um tools like affidavits sworn affidavits from witnesses we also use depositions so you're going to have tools whereby the witness doesn't have to come into court um because they can they can swear under penalty of perjury to facts and the judge can use that but um in cases like injunctions or other things that we'll talk about later um the benefit of having your client appear in court and testify is sometimes there just is no um, better alternative for being able to look a judge in the eye and explain your case. There is just something that oftentimes will not translate on paper, especially, um, you know, although oftentimes it, you, know, you think of civil proceedings as boring. They're emotional. When you get sued or you're suing somebody and you feel like your rights are infringed upon, to be able to make that plea in person is oftentimes a lot more persuasive than a paper affidavit. Right. So I think that's one of the benefits. Yeah. Sure. And to your point about lawyers spending a lot of time at their desk as opposed to in the courtroom, um, it, a lot of that is leading up to what we would call motion practice. Right. And so it's a very boring for non-lawyers, I'm sure, <laughs> but uh, it, it can sink or swim your case. Yeah. And so what we call a motion for summary judgment, or even before they answer the complaint, the defendant may file a motion to dismiss. Those motions are heard by a judge. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're fortunate enough to get an oral argument, then you're in the courtroom. So that's really one of your days in court. Right. And it really depends Oftentimes, if you're in federal court or state court, the federal judiciary, uh, there are fewer judges, large caseloads, and uh, frankly, more times than not, they'll just rule on the pleadings. So you don't even get your day. You, you do get your day in court, but your lawyer's not physically present right. in court. Right. Whereas in state court, uh, more judges, and uh, if it's a motion for summary judgment, you're likely to get it in face 
uh, hearing with the judge and the client is able to attend those hearings if they want to. So that's technically one of the ways you have your days in court. Yeah. And, and I want to really quickly make a distinction for maybe non-lawyer audience between the injunction hearings that we've talked about. They're really quick. You get in there and you're just in front of the judge, right? There's, there's no jury. It's the plaintiff telling their story, maybe the defendant answering some questions. Same thing with motion practice. Often there is no testimony. It's just the lawyer maybe giving an argument in the state court, like Troy said. But again, it's just to the judge. And then later, as we'll talk about the trial, right, would be, depending on the case, to the actual jury. So it's interesting to me that your first times in court, your first days in court, are just in front of a single judge. And they get to be judge, jury, and executioner, as we say, decide where your case goes from there, same thing, maybe in an evidentiary hearing. And that's, you know, then you ultimately, Troy, like you said, a couple of years after you filed your case, right. after you've had a few days in court, you finally get to a trial. Um, so how does that, how long does that normally take in your experience, Troy, in the civil world to get to the actual trial in front of a jury of your peers? It really depends on the, the judge. It depends on the, the workload, caseload that the judge has. It also depends on the nature of the case. Sure. Uh, some cases are very simple, uh, so they're they're not long in terms of duration. So it's a two or three day trial. Those are easier to schedule. If you have a complex case involving multiple parties, complex issues, that's going to take several weeks. Uh, first of all, it's going to be very expensive. But secondly, it's harder to get those scheduled. Uh, and so those tend to go out further. And frankly, it could be up to two years before those parties get their day in court. Yeah. Um, and before that, though, uh, you mentioned an evidentiary hearing. Yeah. So one of the things that um, we have to do in litigation is, depending on the nature of the case and the issues involved, we hire experts. Sure. Experts are not cheap. So you have to disclose the expert during the course of the case. You have a report that's issued. Then the other side deposes your expert or experts and then before the trial, uh, the other side may try to strike that expert and say that the issues that he's uh, he or she are opining on, they're not qualified to do, or uh, it's invading the province of the jury. The jury doesn't need an expert on that issue, right. or the court doesn't need an expert. So you end up with, with um, an evidentiary hearing where you have the expert sometimes present proffered testimony for the judge to determine whether it's admissible or not sure. to go in front of a jury. The real hang up on that is if the court decides that that expert or experts aren't qualified or for whatever reason, you've spent a lot of money yeah. that's just been unfortunately wasted. So you got to be very careful in terms of your selection of an expert they really need to be an expert on that issue. Right. Obviously, you want to kind of deviate, but you want to make sure that that expert hasn't been disqualified <laughs> in other <laughs> right, cases. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. And that has happened. So, yeah. anyway. The other thing on evidentiary hearings that are interesting as a tool is um, as you get to trial, there's a thing that we call an a 
when I was starting out, I could never remember the motions in Lemonade. I thought that was such a weird <laughs> name. Um, but, but you know, arguing about uh, what kind of evidence will be allowed along yeah. the lines of what you were just talking about with an expert, but it may not be an expert. It may be um, documents. It may be witness testimony. And as the old saying goes, you can't unring a bell once it's been rung. Sometimes uh, it's a really good tool to... Uh, have your day in court before court to determine some of those evidentiary issues. Um, we've all seen the dramatic scenes of somebody standing up and objecting, but once that statement has been made or the witness has testified, you can't really tell, you can tell a jury, you know, you're going to disregard that as the judges often will do to objected evidence that they've um, sustained an objection to, but uh, the jury's heard it. So sure. for, depending on the juror, um, whether or not they're really going to be able to forget that evidence that they were told to forget about, um, one of the tools you can do to prevent that happening in trial and blowing up uh, your potential day is argue those issues at a motion limine hearing before you ever get right. to trial. Yeah. So, I mean, we're learning and, and hopefully educating the audience that you file your lawsuit and you might have a few days in court, a few opportunities to make arguments prior to you know, during that that two years or, or longer, maybe less before you get to trial. So in the one sense, it's not just file and then wait for your calendar date to come up. Um, there's a lot going on in the lead up to trial, a lot of preparation, a lot of different things that lays the lays the foundation for that first day in court. Right. And then we finally get there. We've done our our motions for summary judgment. We've done our motions in limine. We've decided on the evidence. We get there, we show up to court day one, Troy, what, what happens? Well, how is that first day? So if it's, we'll, we'll just assume for this discussion that it's going to be in front of a jury. Sure. So the first thing that happens is that you go into the courtroom with your client and the opposing parties there with their client. The judge comes in, uh, makes rulings perhaps uh, that day on the motions in limine, which issues are going to be allowed to be heard in front of the jury. Um, any fights on exhibits, you try to get that resolved then. Then you select a jury. Mm -hmm. So that's called Vordier. And you impanel a group of, it could be up to 30 people, citizens of Maricopa County or the county in which you reside or where the case is being heard. And it's changed a lot over the years. Right. Uh, you used to be able to really spend a lot of time examining the prospective jurors to find out who in your experience and opinion is good for your case and who's not. <laughs> um, and so there are really two ways to challenge a juror. Um, well, really there's only one now. Uh, right now you have to find a reason to have cause. And cause could be anything from severe hardship for that particular prospective juror or somebody who uh, is is biased sure. and then the judge has to make that determination um, <clears throat> and so what that takes the let's say the trial starts in the morning that process can take a half to two-thirds of the first day in trial yeah and it's a little frustrating for people who aren't used to the proceeding because you feel like nothing's getting accomplished right and there's also a frustration of how are you making this decision? Uh, on these jurors, you know, for it's it's a little bit more understandable now because it has to be cause. You used to have the right to just just say no, just say no to somebody. Uh, that was being abused and prolonging trials. So uh, 
that is no longer the case. Right. So once the, the, the jurors are selected, they could be anywhere from in state court, it can be anywhere from six to 12 jurors. Mm -hmm. And the parties agree to that. Normally, if they don't, then the judge makes the decision. Right. And so jury is then impaneled. The judge gives them their oath. Mm -hmm. uh, they then uh, are prepared to hear opening statements. Right. And, and Rita, I want you to touch on that a little bit. And Troy has said it, it has changed a lot. Now, you know, you do a lot of early questionnaires you submit to the, the jurors. And I know in Maricopa County, at least, they show up and they get an iPad and they click through all the questionnaires and you get the results and you know, you're not necessarily examining them. But talk to us a little bit about the art of selecting a jury and, and parsing through their responses to try to get a jury that I mean, we have to say it, you want somebody sympathetic to your case. Yeah, it, it's such an interesting area and you'll get a wide range of opinions and views. And I think even among among attorneys, some people really like that process. Some people don't. I think from my perspective, one of the most important things is um, depending on the judge and, and the opportunity that you have to engage in some board or questioning, it is your first chance to make that impression on the jurors and not just make an impression, but but engage and see who you have a chemistry with, who is paying attention to you, responding to, you know, the dumb jokes you make as you're trying to make a connection <laughs> right. with them. And, you know, who is annoyed and doesn't want to be there? I think, you know, you can, um, uh, I think they even made a TV show about it. You can hire jury consultants, spend a lot of money, whether that's effective or not, you'll, you'll find a lot of different opinions about it. Um, you know, you can't really learn and tell everything about a human being from a profile. We know that. Um, but I think the things that uh, are important, number one is you'll you'll have your client there and they can weigh in on an opinion. Um, obviously now, as Troy said, it is different. Um, when I was practicing in Illinois, you had a certain number of peremptory strikes. I want to say, depending on the type of cases, anywhere from five to seven, where you could for no reason at all, just say, we yep. choose to strike these jurors. So there was a lot more art there. Yep. When you're talking about bias um, or for cause, you have to establish um, you know, a, a significant reason right. based on previously outlined um, um, criteria that would disqualify somebody. I think Troy mentioned a few obvious ones, like if they were related to a party, if they had a personal interest in the case, if they were a felon who didn't have their um, civil rights restored, they couldn't uh, sit as a jury. But those things are all going to be flushed out um, probably before that. So yeah. I think really, especially when you're going to look at um, not having the ability to strike as many um, more liberally, it really is about making that connection with the jury. Yeah, yeah. How how important it is it to either one of you in picking the right jury? I mean, do you know, we're talking, maybe we're talking six jurors, you pick six. Can you tell if you're going to win or lose at that stage or how important is it really to get the right jury? Well, again, it's changed so much sure. um, because now you're going to get the jurors that come in chronological order <laughs> unless they're struck stricken for cost yeah 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 That's so uh, really all you can and there are some judges don't, that don't allow us to ask questions because mm -hmm. the jurors the prospective jurors fill out a questionnaire right beforehand and then we all get the questionnaire and then we have to decide how hard we're going to push for cause right um and you don't want to be you know too direct about it because 
they may still be on the jury. So <laughs> you want them to like you. Um, it used to be a lot easier too. I keep sound like an old geezer um, because you would be able to give a mini opening basically. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, that really helped. A you, lot. Can, you can kind of ask questions. And again, like I said, it really does depend on what kind of freedom you're going to be given. I think one of the things too, you're not supposed to indoctrinate your jury, meaning you're not really supposed to um, give them the facts of the case, but there are ways you can kind of manage certain expectations. One of the um, questions that I always like to do, and we, um, some of the courtrooms I've been in, we were allowed to ask a lot of questions. What kind, what do you do in your free time? What kind of TV shows do you watch? And then there would always be the, you know, you understand if you watch the crime shows, you understand what you see on Law and Order is not going to be what happens right. here. You know, we're not going to wrap this up in 30 minutes. Number one, that usually sure. always got to laugh. But then also, you know, what kind of evidence do you expect, um, you know, to see? And so that sometimes um, not necessarily particular to your case, but can help them address their um, expectations. But right. with respect to your question about whether or not it really makes a difference, I think it does, but I don't think you can always tell. I have had um, both experiences where a juror that I wanted to cut, but my partner felt like we should keep was the one who saved the case. Because <laughs> you oftentimes will get an opportunity, which is so wonderful, to talk to the jurors after a verdict. Mm -hmm. And then I've had the other um, experience where a juror I loved was, uh, I misread completely. So I think you do your best and then you hope for the best. Yeah. 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 And one thing that, I think people don't appreciate unless they've been in the courtroom is just how stoic and serious it is when you're in there. Yeah. Uh, and one thing we always tell every one of our clients when you're in the courtroom, uh, most courtrooms now are microphoned. Mm -hmm. So there's no secret conversation that you're going to have with your lawyer. Right. Uh, and the jury is watching you. And if you're not a likable individual, you know, if you're going apoplectic over every answer that's made that you think is, you know, hogwash, um, that that does come and can be from a jury's perspective, even though there's more than one, um, you can get one holdout. They don't like it because you're wearing a blue shirt that day. Sure. It's, it's hard. It's it's a difficult thing. But yeah. the opening statements um, are are really the the key because i think that's I, I don't know if the studies still uh, support this but after the opening statement normally about 80 percent of the jurors have made up their mind before anybody's testified yeah that, that's so and despite uh all the admonitions <laughs> not to <laughs> right. they often do right. Yeah. right yeah yeah well you, you said statement right and and it is a distinction so opening statement not technically an opening argument but tell us about that tell us how how you paint the picture for the jury in a way that's not maybe overtly argumentative, but tells the jury what they need to know to rule for you at the end. Yeah. So just to, to you bear in mind that in the opening statement, the jury has not heard any testimony. Mm -hmm. They've not been presented with any evidence. Right. It's opening right at the beginning after yes. they've they've been told they've yes. got the case. And sometimes it happens on the same day that you impanel the jury. Right. Sometimes it happens the next day. It just depends on the timing. Sure. And sometimes the plaintiff makes the opening statement and then they rest for the day, which is bad for the defendant because the jurors go home and all they've heard is what the plaintiff had to say. <laughs> so that if you're representing the defendant, try to avoid that. Sure. Um, so what you want is the jury to understand 
the basics of the case. What's this case about? What are you going to hear through the course of this case? Yeah. Um, and it's everybody that I know would like to be able to stand up on the defense side and use the Cousin Vinny line, you know, everything he just said is hogwash. Um, <laughs> that'll get an admonition also from the judge. Um, but it's really trying to keep it simple. Um, don't be argumentative. Uh, and there's a, you know, a gray area there where you can be a little argumentative. But uh, if you get too argumentative and the other side objects and the judge sustains it, that just puts an awkward pause in what you're trying to establish with the jury. You want the jury to understand the basics of the case and why your client is right. Yeah. And that's, you know, I think it's interesting that you mentioned my cousin Vinny and the, the TV show thing, because it's not all like that. You mentioned earlier, it's more stoic. You know, what came to my mind was the A Few Good Men, right? Where oh, he hounds them, hounds them, and he gets the big, the big uh, admission. And yeah, I did it. You know, I ordered the code red. Rita, talk to us about actually presenting witnesses because you're rarely, if ever, going to get that big admission that ends the case and you win. So how do you go about that presenting witnesses to tell the jury what they need to know when you know the defendant's not going to, you know, talk yes. to the crime? I call that the Perry Mason moment, <laughs> it which is, you know. shows my age a little bit, I guess, too. But uh, yeah, everyone wants that moment and you're lucky in your career if you get it a couple of times uh, where it works for you. We've all had the experience yeah. where you have the fun, the not so fun surprises sure. uh, of things you didn't expect. <laughs> um, presenting a witness is always interesting um, because you know, you don't pick your witnesses, the case provides the witnesses for you. And uh, we'll talk about direct and cross the two, uh, two very different um, examinations of, of the same witness. I think the first thing um, we're, we're considering um, presenting a witness in the direct and cross is you need to have done your prep with your witnesses. Yeah. Uh, that is so important. And one of the big things is, uh, you meet with them because by the time, typically, especially if we're talking about trial, by the time you get to trial, the events that happened to create this um, could have happened, and the, the events that happened that you're fighting about didn't happen at the day you filed the lawsuit. So if it's taken two years to go to trial, the events leading up to the actual complaint that you filed could have been six months ago, could have been four years ago, mm -hmm. um, depending on the nature of the action. So you're prepping the witness because um, details get lost or forgotten and you're not, hopefully you've moved on a little bit and you're not talking about the lawsuit every day of your life. So you have hopefully prepped your, your witness ahead of time, not only to kind of get that memory, uh, going again and, and get the recall going, but also, um, to manage their expectations. So they understand what's about to happen. Yeah. Because again, most people's frame of reference for testifying is going to come from TV. And the other really important thing is um, it's going to be emotional. Uh, most people are going to be nervous yeah. or some people are going to be very excited to get up there. Um, and some people are going to be very angry. Yeah. And one of the things that I have found in trials is that anger almost always doesn't play well with the jury. Um, 
you know, if you're being disrespected in court and, you know, there's a time and place for emotion, but if you are up there bitter and angry, even if you have every right to be, it doesn't always help your story be heard. So that prep work is so important to, to getting a good witness. And right now we're just talking about your witnesses. Sure. Um, so that would be like a direct examination. We call it when you, it's your witness, you're putting them on the stand and you're going to elicit um, the information they have. And, and I think the way um, that I would always approach it is I, I think the trial is very much uh, the, it's storytelling. And so when you get your witness up there, what part of the story are they telling? Yeah. So you frame your questions in a way that elicits uh, the answers that make sense and kind of put the the pieces to the, of the puzzle together in a way yeah. that they can kind of see uh, the picture you're trying to create. And um you know, there are rules about how you can ask questions on direct. So you're not allowed to engage in what we call leading questions where you're suggesting an answer. So, you know, isn't it true that when you entered in that arrangement, you this, this, and that instead you have to say, you know, kind of prompt the question to be open-ended and, and more of a narrative style. Right. And, that, and that's where preparation, preparing the witnesses probably comes really into play that, that, you know, you've not told them how to answer, but like you said, you've reminded them, they've had a chance to think about, they've reviewed these documents again, so that when you do ask yeah. the right question, they, they, oh yeah, I remember now. And, they and they're not going to misunderstand the point of the question, no, what you're trying to get at. Right. That's right. that's really, because um, I think that's so important. So you start out that way, and that should be fairly, other than any nerves that the witness may have, yeah. that should be fairly easy um, for the witness to um get through. Uh, and then we get to cross-examination. Sure. And from the attorney's point of view, um, you're switching the way that you ask those questions. So now you get to ask leading questions and you should be in control of the tempo of the questions that you're asking, the speed with which what you do. And, and many times the question is kind of the star of the show. The answer doesn't even matter. Um, it's always I'd be interested to get Troy your answer or your thoughts on this. You know, I think we've all heard um, as attorneys don't ever ask a question that you don't know the answer yeah. to, but it can be really tempting sometimes or, or you really not, you know, you kind of have to get a position on either side. Um, uh, but but anyway, you really want to think about that in terms of the way you're allowed to ask questions mm -hmm. is good at what they do. If we're talking about expert witnesses who have testified before, they know what their job is and they know who's paying uh, their bills. So when you ask a question, they might not give you just that yes or no that, it, you know, they're going to advocate for their side yeah. with the answer. So you want to be able to control that. Right. Excellent. And yeah. What do you think about that? No, totally. Something you don't know the answer to. Well, I wouldn't do it. So here's a good contrast. Sure. So preparation, nothing substitutes for it. Yeah. So this is a trial a few years ago and the plaintiff was on the stand and I was representing a large company as the defendant. Mm -hmm. um, and during the direct examination of the plaintiff, I mean, he was, eloquent and mm -hmm. responsive and was telling his story to the jury and then when i uh, started cross-examination which is rapid fire mm -hmm. and it's yes or no he just wilted yeah. i mean to the <laughs> point where i i didn't feel sorry for him but it's like wow this is just 
ridiculous how yeah. much he's wilted yeah and you know i'm a small guy he was like six foot five <laughs> and so i sit down and his lawyer on redirect she, i've never seen this before but it's and this is unusual but she started asking him questions about my cross-examination style and she said now when you were answering my questions you were very clear and coherent but on cross-examination and I don't know that she used these words. Basically, sure, yeah. she said, you fell apart. <laughs> and uh, his response was, he makes me say things that aren't true. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's a, a good Perry Mason moment because the jury was like, come on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, but obviously, maybe he was uncontrollable to prepare anyway. Sure. But that's an example where you need to put your client or your mm -hmm. witness during the preparation on you know role play in terms of i'm going to ask you 10 minutes of cross-examination right. and you're probably not going to do very well but we're going to work on it right yeah. and if they understand so oftentimes if they understand what the attorney's job is and why you don't want to help him do that job it helps yeah. them control their emotions as they feel like they're being attacked yeah and i agree with you the the most challenging cross-examination as a professional witness because yeah. they've been there they've done it and, yeah. um they're getting paid to be defensive to be and, and, yes right yeah you know advocate right that's side. their job yeah. <laughs> <laughs> certainly. right certainly so you talked a little bit about presenting witnesses and, and i want to talk next about evidence but before i do i want to really quickly go back to your opening statement and and, you know, I think, Rita, you said some things that you're sort of laying out the story and which, which witness is telling which part of the story. And, and Troy, how important is that to you that in your opening statement, you sort of thread the needle between telling the jury this roadmap, what you're going to do, what the evidence is going to be, and then not, you know, boring them with extra details and take too long. I, I, I perceive it to be sort of an art to keep their attention for however long you're yeah. up there, but tell them what they need to know. So unless, you know, it's the O.J. Simpson trial, your opening statement should not be very long. Sure. Uh, 10, 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. That's about the attention span of somebody who's being forced to sit and listen to you, <laughs> um, which is what it is. Yeah, um, the thing that I was trained to do is when listening to the other side's opening statement, mm -hmm writing down everything they, they told the jury that they're going to prove. Mm -hmm. And then on closing, which we'll get to, mm -hmm. remember he said he was, or she said she was going to get to this. Did you hear that? Right. right. Where was this evidence? Right. It didn't come out, did it? <laughs> the other thing, you know, and I, I never forgot this as a, as a young prosecutor, they make you go through um, uh, prosecutor boot camp, as sure. they would call it. And they did a whole segment on opening statements. And I think this is a really helpful um, way to think about opening statements is you want to give them in a, in a quick snap and you don't want to get too themey, you know, you can sure. get a theme and it's a little bit, you know, trite or whatever it may be, but you want to give them, because it is like you said, to use your term, it's a roadmap. You're giving them a roadmap to follow, um, but give them in kind of a nutshell, some kind of statement or um, short 
um, description of the case that they're going to carry with them that will set the framework through which they see all the evidence. And so the quick example that they gave, um, which wouldn't be pertinent in um, civil cases, but you get the idea is uh, he he bought a knife to a gunfight. You know, all you need is that to tell you, and you, you can go on in your opening statement, but that frames all the evidence that you're going to hear and those expectations. So if you can find in a case you know, what encapsulates the message I'm trying to get across in a sentence or two, and then go on with how you're going to establish that in the road roadmap of what your evidence is going to be. I think that's really helpful because if it's really, really, uh, if it's really something that clicks with them or their everyday experience, if you're talking about like a fight with an insurance company or any way that you can kind of get them to grasp um, your viewpoint as they hear all the evidence is going to help them um, kind of see your point of view, right. I think. No, that's excellent. So let's let's go on and right off of that, you're telling the, the jury what the evidence is going to be. So let's talk about presenting evidence, right? We've talked about a little bit about direct and cross-examination of witnesses, but, you know, talk about, talk to us about evidence in the trial. How do we, you know, get it in to use the, the term of how does the evidence get in front of the jury? You know, what sort of evidence is important? Just a little bit about your thoughts on that. You know, it's interesting um, kind of as a corollary to that um, in terms of evidence. I think that's another piece of prep work that's kind of important. Um, and it just brings to mind, uh, it was a case that had been in the news with, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Megan The Stallion. She's a rapper who was shot by another rapper. And one of the things that kind of blew up was another famous rapper had submitted um, a uh, 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 what do you call it? a letter in support at sentencing and uh, one a reporter had ended up getting a copy of that letter and published it online and this rapper had submitted this uh, letter and evidence was very upset that it was made public and said I thought this was for the judge's eyes only which brings you to kind of before you get to that trial stage um, when you're talking about things that are going to be um, submitted for evidence, depending on what the case is about, it, it could involve medical information, medical records, it could be personal financial information. It's important that your client understands what's going to be involved, what's going to be disclosed, who can sit in that courtroom when that stuff's yeah. presented, because they may care about that. Yeah. So it's just kind of an interesting little piece that is uh, good to talk about and manage expectations um, before you get to that stage where you're actually presenting evidence, it's going to be heard by other people. It's it's an interesting experience to have uh, part of your life opened up to some strangers who are going to make decisions about, you know, uh, uh, your life or your your lawsuit. Yeah. Um, but in terms of presenting evidence, I think uh, a lot again a lot more prep work in terms of understanding what type of evidence it is and what are the um, foundation rules that you have to lay to get that piece of evidence in. You right. can't just say, you know, well, here's a document, so I want you all to consider it, right. yeah. you know, and, and it is funny, and I wish it were that simple, but, but you know, you'll get a lot of times from your clients, you, you know, well, I don't understand. Why can't we just tell them this? Why can't, right. you know, and there are rules. It's hearsay, um, you know, have you, you know, can you um, satisfy the foundation rules for entering a text sure. message in or an email? So a lot of the basics, um, it's, it's, I've been in trials where my opponent has not understood how to get a piece of evidence in. And while you're glad it's not you, it's painful to watch right. and you can feel for them. Um, and so you don't ever want that to be uh, the position you're in. So understanding, first of all, how you're going to establish 
um, the reliability of the, the evidence you're putting in so that it's going to be admitted. Um, and then depending on what it is, I think hearsay is one of the most misunderstood um, objections to evidence. And I know we're not talking about objections yet, but in terms of what evidence you're going to be putting on, people, including lawyers, don't always understand um, a hearsay objection. Hearsay is a, a out-of-court statement presented for the truth of the matter asserted. I've seen where somebody has a witness on the stand and because that person is the individual who made the statement, they think they can just say what they said. But there's rules. Is that person a party opponent? It was, you know, in criminal law, it's if they're a defendant, their statement is coming. But so it really is important to understand um, how to get evidence in, um, because if you are up there and you're surprised and something that was really critical to establishing your case doesn't come in it can be a, a game changer. Yeah. yeah, so the way I look at it, and I try to explain it to non-lawyers, is evidence is the meal. Mm -hmm. So if you invite somebody over to your house and you show them or you tell them, hey, you're going to have this great meal tonight, here's what it's going to consist of, but I don't deliver it to you, then, you know, yeah. well, what's the purpose? So, and all too often, especially because of, TV and films, there is no case in this country where they're going to trial. So they've gone all the way through the process. They go to trial and they're taking a two inch folder with them to the courtroom. <laughs> uh, that, that just isn't reality. Sure. Um, again, I feel like grandfather time. Uh, <laughs> when I first was trying cases, we literally would have to bring in a dolly with boxes uh, into the courtroom. Yeah. Uh, now, most of it is electronic, uh, almost uh, certainly in Maricopa County, at least. Mm -hmm. The courtrooms are all electronically configured. Same is true with the federal district courthouse here. Yeah. So there's less paper, but you still have to ha have the paper available sure. for the juror jurors to review. And the other thing that I don't think people appreciate is that you know, 90% of the effort is done pre-trial, and that's governed by what's called the rules of civil procedure. Yeah. Uh, and that, you've got to be a master of that. Right. Then at trial, it shifts from the rules of civil procedure to the rules of evidence. Right. And you've got to be a master of that. Then after the trial, it shifts back to the rules of civil procedure. <laughs> <laughs> it's a... Uh... It's fraud with yeah. all the, you know, million different rules that it, you mess one up, you know, Rita, you said, if you don't get your evidence in that you need it in, it could be fatal to the case. So, well, and not to cut you off, no, but please. you bring up something else, which is so important. And I think maybe for, um, you hate to say, but like the younger people coming up, not as big of a deal, but you have to understand electronics. You have to be able to work with a computer and you have to be able to show, um, you know, you have to be able to um, interface. And if you're, you're not sure, check with the court and see if you can come in and practice, if you're going to be doing a PowerPoint, if your evidence can be photographs that you want um, displayed on a screen to show the jury, you know, understand what um, AV equipment your courtroom uses, what they require you to use, and make sure you have the tools to interface with their equipment and that you understand how it works. And don't be afraid to set up a practice time um, because again, if it, it hinders your performance, your ability to get a piece of evidence in there, um, you know, it can, it can be super detrimental. Yeah. 
Well, I know we're, we're getting close to our time and there's so much more we could talk about, about, you know, witnesses and evidence and objections that we've mentioned a little bit and closing arguments. I, I just sort of want to wrap up, you know, you present your evidence, present your case, the defense does, you give your closing argument, which, you know, Troy, you mentioned in your closing argument, you'd say, hey, did, did they prove everything they said to prove? They didn't. And we sure did. Here's the 10 things we we're going to prove. And then, you know, they deliberate, you get to a verdict. Will you just talk to our audience for just a little bit about the verdict stage? What happens then? You know, what might it mean for the client? And then, of course, there's other things that could happen after that we may have to get into later. Right. So real quickly, once all of the evidence has been presented mm -hmm. and the closing statement has been delivered by both parties, then the judge reads to the jury what's referred to as jury instructions. Sure. And it's how they are supposed to deliberate when they go back into the jury room. And that includes what they can consider, what they can't consider. Um, and so they go back and they're obviously it's more complicated than that. They go back into the jury room and then you, so the rule of thumb, it's really just a rule of guessing. But, um, <laughs> if you're the defendant and the jury comes back within a couple hours, that usually means they're going with the plaintiff. Yeah. Um, if they're in there for more than a day or so, that means they can't reach a consensus. And so that's usually better for the defendant. Right. But it's like reading tea leaves. You don't know that's right. I've seen it work both ways. Oppositely yeah. of what Wedge just said. Um, so they'll reach a verdict, they'll come back. And I'll just ensure yeah. you real quick here in civil cases, what many people may not know is it doesn't have to be unanimous. Correct. I'm glad you said that because yeah. I, I was thinking I should have said that. Uh, but in federal court, it does have to be unanimous, but in state court, it does not in a civil case. Right. And so they'll read the verdict or the bailiff will. And then um, the other side, whoever loses, can right. challenge it. And they, I want to pull the jury. <laughs> and like somehow some member of the jury is going to say, I didn't mean to, I to, to do this. You made me do it. It was not my vote two minutes right. ago. Right. I just wanted to go home. <laughs> um, and so uh, then you'll get, um, go out of the courtroom. Whoever's the prevailing party will submit a form of judgment. That takes a few days. Then the other side objects to it. Uh, if it's a breach of contract case, then the prevailing party may apply for their attorney's fees mm -hmm. and costs. So that can go on for several months yeah. before you get a final judgment. And then once you get a final judgment, the other side might appeal it. And, um, you yeah, that's welcome to yeah, years. You add your years onto the, the years you've waited. Yeah. Well, but one thing, why many cases settle. <laughs> right. And one thing uh, while we close here. So I'm sure we've all heard somebody say this. My lawyer's a pit bull. Yeah. You know, uh -huh. yeah, yeah. Just wait till they get him in the uh, courtroom. Yeah. Well, I was probably a pit bull when I you know, first started, but uh, pit bulls aren't good in the courtroom. Yeah. Um, they annoy jurors. <laughs> they annoy the judge. Yeah. They annoy the judge's staff. Yeah. Uh, and the jurors see that. Right. So again, it's supposed to be a stoic place mm -hmm. where you can be persuasive, mm -hmm. you can be a little aggressive, but always be professional. And remember that the jurors, they're there because they got subpoenaed. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They're not there because they, they want, want to be there. there. <laughs>
That's right. I agree. 100%. <laughs> well, this has been for me an excellent discussion. Uh, very informative. We hope it has been for our audience as well. Um, thank you both for being here and thank the audience for listening to episode six of the It's Law podcast presented by FR Lock. Thanks, Richie. Thank you.